So, Matthew, the book of Matthew, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is written by a guy named Matthew, and that's why it's not titled very creatively, but uh, Matthew is written as a manual of how to follow or how to live in what's called the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of Jesus, or those kinds of things. Jesus is presented in this gospel, which there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew presents Jesus uh, is with an emphasis on him being king and that his followers live in his kingdom and we learn to live uh, for our king or for Jesus and this kingdom from what we believe isn't something that's going to happen someday when they talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Jesus uh, it doesn't mean the heaven that we think of like the afterlife where we float on clouds and wear a robe all right it, uh, some, that was shocking to someone backstage. Uh, but, uh, so we're not, we're not thinking of someday we're going to be in this place. In the, the Gospel of Matthew, the emphasis in Jesus' teaching is the immediacy of the kingdom. That Jesus was establishing his kingdom or revealing the establishment of his kingdom in a current state uh, near the people where they lived. Not someday you can feel what it is to live with God, but you can now feel what it is to live with God in our world. And so these parables that Jesus gives today, uh, kind of stories or um, um, fables, some people would use that word to describe these stories with a point, uh, kind of go in that direction. And so we're going to, and over the next few weeks, to kind of look at what the kingdom of God is. Uh, often, because this was written to a Jewish audience, um, it is, uh, if you've ever read Jewish texts, they have that G-D sometimes, because writing out the word of God is seen as blasphemy. So when we're uh, reading, they'll use the words kingdom of heaven, interchangeable with kingdom of God, uh, just so you don't get confused and think they're different kingdoms or something like that. Um, it's all the same. So we're going to go from verse 24 to verse 43, um, but we're not going to, we'll read it all the way through and then talk about some different parts so that we can uh, understand where Jesus is going. So Jesus is teaching, and it says this, he put another parable before them, that he is Jesus, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. <clears throat> so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. Dun, dun, dun. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in, the gathering, in, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's a grain. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, Till it was all leavened. 
All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples, the twelve, came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Jesus' name for himself in the Gospel of Matthew. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom and daughters. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who, who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is, excuse me, the harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That last statement, he who has ears, let him hear, is a common phrase in the Bible and it isn't referring, we talked about this before, to people with literally with ears. Uh, it's an invitation in their culture, a cultural phrase to an invitation for everyone to hear and understand this. And so Jesus gives these teachings and these are my favorite parts of the Bible because sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, now what does that mean? And then Jesus says, here's what I said, now here's what it means. So there's no debate over what Jesus means when he's talking about the the parable of the wheat and the weeds in the field because Jesus says here's what it means it's, it's kind of one of those part, you know when you get to heaven you have like six questions you want to ask God like why mosquitoes right and those kinds of things um, <laughs> the big ph- philosophical stuff <laughs> but this is one where you don't have to ask Jesus has already answered for you a little taste of what we need in heaven um, so I want to start at the phrase of parables, though, in verse 34 and 35, when Je- talks about how Jesus was speaking in parables. And he spoke in parables all the time to crowds during this part of his teaching ministry. A lo- and he gives many teachings, but he always gives them in these little stories. And the disciples will ask in different places, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? And it's actually referring to a couple of things. He does this first of all because it fulfills prophecy. It was prophesied that by Old Testament prophets centuries before Jesus was on earth that Jesus would speak and share the truths of the kingdom of God through parables. And the reasoning that Jesus gives for doing this is that the truth is revealed to some but it's hidden from others. Some people will hear the message of Jesus, and this is reality, right? And it just won't click. They just won't get it. They just won't understand it. Other people will hear the message of Jesus, and it's obvious. And they're like, this is the thing I've been looking for. And, and you can have two people in the same room hearing the same message, and one person is like, God's speaking to me. And the other person's like, I don't, I don't hear or understand or see anything going on here. And Jesus shares in parables because he's aware of this reality. That this is the truth. That the Holy Spirit reveals things to us. And by speaking in parables, Jesus can depend on the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. 
and not just on his own manipulative words. Because if, if, if anyone would be good at starting a cult, it'd be Jesus, right? He knew people's thoughts. He could manipulate them. He could do the things he wanted to do. But in order to have integrity as the part of the Trinity, Jesus spoke in parables so that the Holy Spirit could do work in people's lives. <coughs> that was awkward. All right. Heather, this is the moment you need to edit out. All right. Um, we put our teachings online and we'll make sure that doesn't happen. So if you're jogging, you don't blow your ear out when you're listening to this. And we'll cut all of this out too. Um, this is going downhill quickly. Jesus gives this parable of the weeds. And this is three parables. One's a longer story. The other two, the mustard seed and, and the uh, leaven in the bread. Really short, just kind of similes on the end. Uh, and, or metaphors or similes, that kind of thing. And, but Jesus gives this long story of the weeds in the field. Where a farmer sows seeds in his field and when it grows up, some of the things that grow are weeds. And if you have like a study Bible or something, it'll point to the bottom. There's actually a weed in the area where Jesus lived called Darnell. And when it grows, it looks exactly the same as the wheat. You can't notice it until it's taller and it doesn't grow heads of grain on the top. And so these weeds will grow up looking just like the real thing. And when they grow, the workers in the field get confused thinking, you know, hey boss, we thought you bought good seed this year. We don't under had. We thought you had good seed this year. What's, what's going on? And the boss or the farmer, the head, the owner, uh, understands. Somebody did this to me. Somebody went through my field after I had sowed good seed and sowed weeds. It's an act of terrorism against a farmer, right? When he went to bed, the bad guy came and sowed bad seed in his field to try to ruin his crop to try to kill out what the farmer was trying to do. And so the servants are trying to be proactive and think we're going to pull this all up. But the master, the farmer, understands if we go and try to pull the weeds out, we might destroy some of the good seed. So we're going to wait till everything's mature. We're going to wait till the end of the season. Wait till harvest time. Then we'll go through, pull the weeds out. We'll burn them the way that's what you do. That, that would be the natural farming thing for them to do. And then we'll harvest and get the wheat and put it in the barn and it'll be good. And that'll be what, this will be how we work this out. But we'll wait until harvest. And so there's, this is a good parable if you think oh, I'm the wheat. And it's a scary parable if you think you're the weeds. Because then Jesus explains the parable and just gives like point form. Here's this, here's this, here's this. Uh, down in verse 36 to 43. Jesus says the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So it's Jesus. Jesus is the farmer. All right, He's putting out the good seed. The field is the world. The whole world. And Jesus is in charge of the whole world. It's it's his kingdom. And so the field is the world and the good seed are the sons. And we would say sons and daughters. Culturally for them they would just say sons. The sons of the, of the kingdom is the good seed. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And so there are both in the field. And the enemy who sowed them is, just so there's no confusion, the devil. 
The harvest is the close of the age. It's what we would call the end times, or the end of everything. The end of this age where we eventually go into uh, eternal life with God, or um, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just as the, oh sorry, and the reapers are angels. Anytime you get a chance to say reapers, it's a good day. But just as the weeds are gathered and burned with a fire, so it will be at the close of the age. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Jesus gives this little picture of what we call hell here. And we're going to get back to this like in Matthew 25. Um, And so we'll spend a lot more time talking about hell in 12 chapters. But the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And so those things, causes of sin and lawbreakers, don't exist in the afterlife, in heaven, which we read in Revelation. There's no sin, no sadness, no lawbreaking there. And they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I love the talking about hell because there's so much opinion about it. It's kind of a theological hot-button issue. If you read uh, books very often, we've, there are popular pastors that write a book about this head part of hell, or that hell isn't as real as you think it is, and then this one writes a, he gets a theologian to write a book, and but it's he puts his name on it, so they actually sell books, and uh, uh, so they write a book about how it's all this, and everything's true and literal. The, the best pastor, like the best answer I hear about this, people will say, do you believe like literally hell is like a fiery furnace? And, and I'll tell you, and you can call the superintendent, I don't believe that it's literally a fiery furnace. I think it's much worse than that. <laughs> like I think fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth are the best words we can get to describe hell. But I don't, like, that doesn't mean you're actually going to have teeth to gnash in hell. I don't know. But it's going to be worse than that. Alright? And, and I know, um, if you're here for the first time, you've never heard of Jesus, this is a bit of an awkward thing, right? Like, this is the week I told everyone, invite your friends, because it's Halloween. Um, but I think it's important to understand that we believe something about eternity. And that we describe heaven as eternity with God. And we describe hell as eternally, hopelessly separated from God. If you can imagine an existence without hope, I think that's as bad as it gets. And I don't mean hope in a political slogan kind of way. I mean like actual, real, like like you have thoughts of a future. And if you don't have thoughts of a future or thoughts of potential... Uh, this, when we talk, when you talk with people who are suicidal, that's what they think. That's that's what you're driven to when you don't have hope, like when your hope hits zero. And an eternity like that would be the most depressing, the saddest, the worst possible way to exist. And there's all sorts of theologians that will talk about this or talk about that. But in common, all of them, whether they think hell is like this or hell is like that or this kind of fire or these kind of things or whatever, being apart from God hopelessly is the worst thing that we can possibly imagine. And so when Jesus is talking about gathering up the weeds and their destruction, he's talking about the worst thing imaginable for the sons of the evil one or the sons of the devil. 
it's stark also because there's nothing in between and we like gray areas but Jesus doesn't give a gray area he gives some of them are weeds some of them are wheat the wheat goes here the weeds go there there's nothing in between there's no like oh purgatory <laughs> I guess or I don't I don't mean to slam a doctrine of purgatory but there's no like gray area or no waiting room or no like figure it out in the afterlife you're either wheat or your weeds and in this parable the differentiation is severe now the differentiation is severe at the end notice what Jesus does about the weeds or the farmer does about the weeds all season long nothing the rain falls on the weeds just like the rain falls on the wheat the wheat enjoys the sunlight and the weeds do too it's a weird thing, but Jesus allows and will continue to allow the existence of people who reject him for all of the, the existence of the world until the close of this age when the things in the end of Revelation happen and we move to an afterlife. All creation is renewed and those kinds of things. There will always be people who are in the kingdom of God and there will always be people who aren't and both will always receive the blessing of living in God's creation there will be people who are evil who will enjoy the blessing of God always it's just going to be life there are going to be people who reject God and have fantastic lives. People who have no interest in the message or the hope or the love of Jesus. And they're going to live right next door to you. And it's going to just continue like that. There will always be people who write books about how useless or antiquated or dead or wrong God is. Always. And God will continue to let them sell books. <laughs> and God will continue to let that industry grow. And he won't squash it. Now I would think, when I'm because I suffer b with being a judgmental person, they would be good to go through and rip those weeds out and let them know who's the farmer, right? I'm the farmer here. You're a weed, right? We do this in our garden. It feels good. I'm higher on the food chain than a weed, right? <laughs> but Jesus apparently just lets it go. It reveals a certain amount of security, I think, that Jesus has. That he's God and he doesn't have to worry about the existence of weeds in his field of wheat because he knows the decisiveness of the separation at the judgment. The severity but we aren't partnering with Jesus in his judgment. The reapers are the angels. They aren't the Christians. It isn't the Christian's job to identify those who are in and those who are out. And that's a hard thing because we're good at it. Right? Like we're good at it and not to, like not just in general, like we're really good at it. 
We have little things that we, we have like radio stations that we listen to that they don't. Uh, books that we listen, read that they don't. We have little sayings. In the 90s we wore bracelets to say what would Jesus do, right? And that's how we identified each other. If you were in youth group in the 90s you wore one of those to let the eligible Christian girls know that you were available, right? Like I'm a Christian and single. Um, I just want you to know that. I have a what would Jesus do bracelet on. <laughs> and, and you just, but we have these things and, and if you can imagine those from the perspective of a non-Christian it's a little bit awkward but we're really good at drawing those lines of knowing who's in and who's out like we're this is our camp we're these people and we'll have pastors and I'll tell you these authors are good and these authors are heretics and we'll know we hate the heretics and we love the people who we think are right and apparently Jesus doesn't give us that authority. This might be a shocking moment. But Jesus doesn't give Christians, if you're not a Christian, this might be shocking as well. Jesus doesn't give the Christians you know the right to judge humanity. Apparently the reapers are angels. It's somebody else's job to do the judgment at the end of the world. It's the Christian's job to love the world. And to love everyone. And it is, it's kind of a funny thing when you talk with, um, when you talk with people, like the, it's a hot button issue right now, but if you talk with people who are homosexual, they know what the church thinks. Like the, if I hold a conservative viewpoint theologically towards homosexuality. And they know what I think. I don't need to explain it to them. They know. Probably because they've had it explained to them in negative ways. Or in hurtful ways. What they don't know is that I believe it's the role of the church to love everyone as long as we possibly can. And it gets awkward because I don't know what that looks like, right? Like, how do, who knows how to do that? And, and I don't mean to talk about this subject. And we're not, this isn't the subject. But what I'm saying is... The role of the church isn't to let the sinners know that they're sinners. They already know that we think that. <laughs> like the church, historically, over the last couple decades, we've done a really good job at judging people. Like we're awesome at it. The, the thing is, that might not be a skill that we want. <laughs> that might not be the reputation. Like, hey, I'm really good at being judgmental, so I'm thinking of being a Christian. <laughs> I think my judging skills would go up. And I don't, like, this isn't me condemning someone else. I'm king of being judgmental. I'm, I make decisions really fast about other people according to what jersey they're wearing. All right? <laughs> it's not hard. I know if they like bandwagons or not. All right? <laughs> like, it's just, and I'm a bandwagon guy too. And people judge me. So it's like a gift I give people who are judgmental. But, it, as a church and as Christians understanding that forever there will be wheat or forever in this age until the afterlife starts there will be those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom and forever there will be those who aren't and the wheat doesn't have to point out to the weeds that they're weeds it's, everybody knows and the, the weeds don't have to point out to the wheat that they're different everybody knows the difference is 
how much we love those who aren't like us. Those who aren't inside our boundaries. And sometimes those are even Christians. But they don't worship like us, or they don't sing like us, or they don't dress like us, or they aren't Wesleyan-Arminian like us. You don't even know what that is. That's how much it doesn't matter. Right? But it's just, we land in these places and we start thinking that we're better because we are around people that think the same as us. So, uh, next, I need to move forward. My son said, keep it short, because he wants his candy. Um, he said it like four times. But the next little passage Jesus gives, it says, uh, the kingdom of heaven... It's like a grain of mustard seed. This is 31. That a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. There's some debate theologically over whether Jesus means mustard seed because it doesn't really grow into a tree. But there's places in Galilee where the mustard plants will grow. Really, it's an oversized shrub. But if you want to argue over that, I don't understand that. But they'll grow to be like 10 feet high and stuff like that. But, but it's not a tree in the truest sense. But if you understand mustard seeds, plants, once you have a mustard problem, it's really hard to control. Like it's treated here in America by farmers as, as almost a weed. If you're not trying to grow mustard and seeds and it starts growing in your land, it's terribly annoying because there's tiny little seeds that are hard to get rid of and they grow and they produce thousands of more seeds on their plants. And in Jewish just phraseology, the mustard seed was as small as it gets. Where we would say atoms are as small as it gets, or whatever electrons, or whatever electrons are made of now, uh, quantum strings. We um, we don't we think that's what's small. And the in Jesus's day, the mustard seed was the smallest thing. And so it refers to the kingdom of God as being the smallest thing. But this small thing that's planted and grows is incredibly effective. It's a weird deal because we are obsessed with size, aren't we? Like we want the biggest church or the biggest conference or we want to buy the highest selling book. And when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, he's like, it's that tiny thing that nobody notices, but it's planted in a field and later on it grows and then you can't stop it. Interesting little uh, metaphor because of how small and invasive the mustard seed is. But Jesus apparently is anti-size. He doesn't go after the largest thing to show the metaphor of the power and the force of the church on earth or the sons of the kingdom. Then he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And this is a bacon analogy that they would all use. And it was kind of a there would be a stark confusion there because normally in Jewish thought leaven represented evil. But Jesus turns it around and uses it to represent good. Jesus redeems leaven. Just saying. Um, but this three measures of flour is like 50 pounds. This is like enough bread to feed like 100 people. All right? like this is like If we were making sandwiches for everyone here and the woman works the leaven in and it's hidden and it's silent and yet it works all the way through the bread, all the way through the dough, so that it affects the whole 50 pounds of it. So that everybody enjoys the benefit afterwards. But you don't see it. You don't know it. 
It's like when you're baking, it's one of those ingredients that you add that nobody notices you added, but it makes all the difference in the world. It seems like the kingdom of God for Jesus is anti-publicity, anti-noise, anti-protest, anti-power. And yet in that, it becomes this incredibly effective, invasive force where you can't pull some of the bread out that isn't affected by the leaven. You can't see it. You don't know it's there. But it's changing everything. When Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is here, is a present reality. It's very, very close to you. The work of God is happening around us and the rule of God is being established around us very, very close to us. This isn't something that's happening someday in heaven. This is something that's happening now. And so we're encouraged to participate, to be sons and daughters of the kingdom, to be a part of the rule and reign of Jesus here, currently, on his creation. And yet, we're encouraged by just the kingdom's existence. We send our high schoolers every year at this church this thing called Acquire the Fire. Our high school, I think our middle schoolers go too. I'm not sure about that, but uh, they go and they rent uh, that Duck Basketball Stadium, the new one, Matthew Knight Arena, and they all go in there. And these kids go in, and if you're a teenager that's been there, you know this. You walk in, and you don't even think it, but if you've ever been to high school today, it's incredibly difficult to follow Jesus. Like, I know it was hard when we were kids, yada, yada, yada. It is, the world is secularizing so quickly and becoming anti-Christianity so quickly that it is, like, it is exponentially more difficult to be a young person who's a Christian. Uh, more challenging. Like, I don't think, they're not being beat up or something, but their views are misunderstood and misrepresented. And they're starkly different to the values of our culture as compared to when we were in high school in the 90s. All right? or when you were in two years ago. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're very young. But um, they go into this high school environment and it, they feel so alone because you don't have a what would Jesus do bracelet to identify all the Christians. You don't turn blue when you're a Christian so everybody can know you. Christians don't all wear the same t-shirt or something like that. And then they walk into this Matthew Knight arena and it's full with thousands of Christians who are their age. And there's this, I, I don't even care what they talk about, well, as long as it's not outside of our boundaries of heresy, you know, but the stage, a lot of teenagers can't tell you what they said, can't tell you what they sung, they'll just tell you it was awesome. And half the reason it was awesome is because they found out there's thousands of kids that are going through the same thing they're going through every single day. That they're not alone. That there is this kingdom of heaven that's working. And I would bet that you go to your work. I bet the majority of us. And you feel very alone sometimes. And you love coming to the grove because you sit there and you're like, look at all these other people that are just like me. Because the kingdom of God, its existence defeats our loneliness. Then its hope, because it's so, it's so scalable, gives us a future 
And we know that there's potential. We know that this tiny mustard seed of faith that we have is turning into something great. And we know that the kingdom of God, like leaven, even though we can't see it, we know it's working. You might not see what God's doing. Like the, all the way down to in your life, you might not see what God's doing, but I know that God is doing. Like you might not see where God is working, but the truth is, He is working. And some of us here had the worst week of our lives this week. And we're like, I know God's working, but he's probably busy with someone else's life because he skipped mine this week. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It's that God is working in your life. And you might not see it, you might not know it, but he is. You might be here and you're... You've never even thought about Christianity and this is the first time you've ever heard about it. You don't know it, but your whole life God's been working in your life for your benefit. God loves to bless. He loves to grow you. He loves just to love you. And you've always belonged to Him. And He's always been working in you. The difference is, do you grow up as a weed or do you grow up as wheat in his kingdom? Do you reject the hope of God or do you put your trust in him, repent of your sin? We use the word salvation or you might heard the news, they use the word born again. And Jesus used that word to actually describe what it is. It's like being born again, like starting a new life with God. Turning away from what your life was and turning into living in the way of Jesus. So we're invited to this movement, not powered by men, not powered by our cool marketing strategy, not powered by how loud we are politically, or not powered by how effective our systems are, but powered just by God's Spirit. Planted like seeds in a field by Jesus. Sorry, seeds in Jesus' field by Jesus. And this kingdom movement of love and hope and potential and promise, it's what Christianity is. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that's encouraging. If you've never given your life to Jesus, it's inviting to where this would be a day maybe you can start that journey. Or whoever you came with, you can ask them. You can ask me, I'll be standing by my trunk. (laughs) What does that mean and where does that go? Because this kingdom is in existence and will continue to be in existence. And we have the opportunity to be in God's kingdom or to not be in God's kingdom. And the results of that decision are decisive at the end of this age. To where you live eternity with the hope of a relationship with God or you live eternity without the hope of a God's presence. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your work, for your love, for the potential you see in us and for the promise you bring into us and bring out in us. And we ask for your grace, for your grace to encourage us for your grace to show us that we're not alone, 
for your grace to show us that it's not hopeless. For those days when we feel like you forgot to work in us or in our lives or like you're busy with world peace and you don't know that we're having a bad day, we thank you for the promise that you are at work. You do not abandon. That your love is powerful, overwhelming, and there's nothing that can separate us from you and your purposes. For those of us maybe who've never heard of you, then we would ask your grace in revealing to our hearts, revealing to our very souls who you are, and overwhelming us with your love and your forgiveness, and helping us tur- tur- to turn our lives over to you. Over and over again. That that would be the pattern of our life and the pattern of our growth. Until the harvest. Until the end of this age. We pray this simply by your mercy, praying for your grace in our lives. Amen.